0: Today we're going to be in Acts chapter 9, starting with verse 32. The last time we saw the start of Saul's preaching ministry, and then they send him to Tarsus because of the heat, the persecution, and then the church gets some rest. You see a a time of refreshment for the church. Today we're going to shift gears from Saul or the Apostle Paul to the Apostle Peter. For a few chapters and later we're going to pick up with Saul again. Verse 32. Now it came to pass as Peter went through all parts of the country that he also came down to the saints who dwell in Lydda. There he found a certain man named Anas who had been bedridden eight years and was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Enos, Jesus the Christ heals you. Arise and make your bed. Then he arose immediately. So all who dwelt at Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. So you see a a progression of Peter's ministry go from really good in the beginning to the greatest. You see a healing of the physical body to a resurrection of the body to the spreading of the eternal life-saving gospel. Lydda was mostly Gentile. It was approximately 25 miles northwest of Jerusalem and about 10 miles from the Mediterranean and is currently the city in Lod in Israel. In verse 33, we're introduced to a man named Enos, And his name means praise, although it took him eight years to fully realize that praise report. Some of you may be there today. Uh, There may be something going on in your life that, uh, you know, is troublesome. Maybe it's been gone on for years and you just don't see a way out of it. But just like his name was praise, we have to praise God even through the hard times. We have to praise him knowing that he'll Honor our circumstances, knowing that he won't give us more than we can handle. Uh and you know, this the Psalms speak about praising him, regardless. David often comes to God and petitions him in his in his prayers and presents the struggles that he's having to God. But he says, Nevertheless, I will praise thee, and he gives the Lord praise. Verse thirty four. So what was the formula? What did Peter say to this man? You're healed. Did he say, by my power? Did he say, because I'm special and I'm one of God's chosen and that's why you're healed? Did he say, all you need is faith? We see a lot of that today, but that's not what Peter said. Peter said, Jesus Christ heals you. He gives all the glory to the Lord completely. Unfortunately, too many ministries today are taking credit for any work of God, whether real, perceived, or manufactured. On a personal note, I can tell you, for me personally, I don't take any credit for all the good things that happen here. I try to always give the glory to the Lord. When I first became a pastor, I had no experience as a pastor. And I knew I was out of my element, in a sense, but I wanted to serve God. And I knew that even though I didn't have an expertise, I wanted to trust God for the ministry. So honestly, I'm I'm the example of somebody who just wants to praise God and says, Hey, no matter what good you see happen here, All glory goes to the Lord. Verse 35, the uh, place of Sharon that's mentioned in the Bible. It's a Mediterranean coastal plain between Joppa and Mount Carmel. And basically, if you're not familiar with those areas, it runs parallel north and south to the Jordan River on the west coast. So Peter gets to do for temporary uh, this circuit on the Mediterranean coast. Also in verse 35 Those that saw the great works of Christ wrought through Peter turned to the Lord. So what do you see here? You see results. The fruit of our laboring with him. And this is what we should yearn for as Christians. If we call ourselves people of God, this is what we should yearn for. Results in terms of fruit. I'll give you two examples of this. The first one, many of you know that on October 7th, the... Gospel for Asia is going to come out and speak. Uh, One of their missionaries who's spent many years on the mission field, he's going to come out and talk to us about what they're doing overseas. And I remember the founder of this, K.P. Yohannan, told um, several years back when I was attending Calvary Chapel Old Bridge, he told a story about some great thing that happened on a mission field. And he said that uh, there was this one town where there was a a priestess uh, to a pagan god, who held all the subjects of those villages in bondage, and she kept them in fear with curses if they didn't follow this particular demonic uh, religion. And it happened that at one point in time she became paralyzed. She became sick and paralyzed. And KP came to her and he said, What will you do if Jesus heals you? She said, I will turn to him. I will turn to him and worship him. And all these people in these villages will also turn to your Jesus and worship him. So he, you know, humbly, he asked the Lord for that, uh, you know, the spirit must have been moving in him, and he was able to pray for her, and she was healed. So from being completely paralyzed, she immediately, like this man, was able to get up, and it was a miracle. And she kept her promise. She walked with him to all the villages, and they saw her walking, and they gave glory to the God, and they praised him, and they became Christians. Pretty amazing. Now, even on a smaller scale, A second example, a sister in our fellowship gave me permission to use this. Uh, I was on duty, and uh, I came across a situation where she was a victim of a domestic incident, and I had to go back a few times, and I was instrumental in leading her to Christ. And for accountability's sake, I introduced her to my wife, you know, for accountability. Uh, But she became a strong Christian, and she became the type of Christian. Not only was she a strong Christian, but she was a gentle and loving evangelist. She had an unassuming, non-confrontational way to give people the gospel. And she shared with many people, just so excited about Jesus. Recently, uh, one of the younger officers that I work with, I've been talking to him about the Lord, and uh, he calls me up on the cell phone. We're both on duty, and he goes, Joe, I got one of your parishioners here. He goes, she's a really nice lady, wonderful woman to talk to, but she keeps talking to me about my soul. Can you come over here quickly and help her out? (laughs) She had a a dead battery and I came over with the jumper cables and I I got her going. But, you know, he was really impressed by her mannerism, her sweetness, and even in a hard time how she was able to handle the situation and be concerned about his soul. So um, that was, I was just, I can't tell you how that made me feel. It was the fruit of my labor. Verse 36, at Joppa there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. But it happened in those days that she became sick and died. When they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. And since Lydia was near Joppa, and the disciples had heard that Peter was there, they sent two men to him, imploring him not to delay in coming to them. Then Peter arose and went with them. When he had come, they brought him to the upper room. And all the widows stood by him weeping, showing the tunics and garments which Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all out and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. Then he gave her his hand and lifted her up, and when he had called the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed on the Lord. So it was that he stayed many days in Joppa with Simon, a tanner. The second great event wrought by Peter was raising a woman back to life. Pretty impressive, but we still have one more to go. Joppa is modern-day Jaffa in Israel. From Lydda to Joppa was about 10 miles worth of travel, so it would have taken him some time to get there. Now we're introduced to Tabitha. The Bible says or Dorcas. Dorcas is the Greek equivalent, and her name means gazelle. She was disciple which was one who learns in the Greek. Disciple means one who learns in the original language or a student or an apprentice. She did charitable deeds and good works. This woman was a shining example of what a Christian should be. We should often examine our lives to see, could we call ourselves disciples? Now, think about yourself in your place of employment or with your social group or with family. Would you have the courage to say that you're a disciple of Christ. Two things could happen. One, some people are embarrassed because their Christianity is relegated to the church and to Christian friends, but it doesn't get carried over into other areas. So you might feel funny, oh, I'm a disciple of Jesus. You kind of cringe a little bit. The other uh, possibility is, if we say we're a disciple of Christ, would our, dis- would our lives reflect that? could we say to those who work with us, yeah, I'm a disciple of Christ. And they'd be like, you? You're know, you the worst example of a Christian I've ever seen. You know what I'm saying? So that's the other example. And we would hope that we could say we're a disciple of Christ with a straight face and with confidence, right? And in verse 36, yes, this Tabitha was a wonderful person, but good and godly people get sick and they die indiscriminately. It's random. You don't know. No one I know has a um, expiration date stamped out with the date and the time that you're going to pass. You know, your body's going to die. It doesn't happen. But our physical bodies are all under the curse of sin. If you've been sick or disabled and you've been told that only the faithless get sick, that's not true. God doesn't love you any less if you're in that condition. Unfortunately, even at the time of Jesus, the disciples, when the man was blind, the disciples said, Was it because of his sin or his parents? And we still do it today. We equate suffering and disability with somebody must have sinned here. Well, we all sin. That's why we all suffer and that's why we all die. But it doesn't mean that one particular person who has something worse than someone else is a bad sinner or they're being punished by God, although we tend to go that way in our minds. But Dorcas was dead. She couldn't exercise any faith to become alive again. She couldn't do it. She was dead. I want to read, if you would turn to Romans 5, a few verses. Romans 5. Starting with verse 12. Paul says this, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. That's a very powerful statement right there. The one man that he's talking about is Adam through the rebellion of our federal parents way back when because of sin that entered the world and rebellion. Then death entered the world. Now, death is both physical death. And we know we've all gone to funerals or know somebody who's passed and spiritual death. They come as a package. And I'm going to elaborate on that. I'm going to go through. I'm going to skip verses 13 through 17. It's a parenthetical statement, but I just want to focus on a few things here. Verse 18. It says, Therefore, as through one man's offense judgment came to all men, Adam, resulting in condemnation, hell, even so through one man's righteous act the free gift came to all men, Jesus and salvation, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, by also one man's obedience many will be made righteous. And that free gift is offered. All we have to do is receive that free gift. I was witnessing uh, to a gentleman at the barbecue who had some questions and concerns uh, about, you know, salvation and all. And I basically did a simple illustration. I'm sure many of you have seen. Took my ring off and I said, "This is the most, this is the most precious thing in the world." In your mind, imagine. Can't be bought. Can't be traded. You just can't attain it, no matter what you do. Okay? And I said to him, "It's yours." What do you have to do to receive this gift? And he stood there with his hand at his side. I said, Are you receiving this free gift? He goes, No. I said, Exactly. Your hand isn't an out. And that's what Jesus has already done the work. He's already died on the cross, but it's up to us to put the hand out and say, Yes, I will take that. I will receive it. A gift is not a gift until you actually receive the gift and you take ownership of that gift. So this is what's going on here. Uh, so sin entered the world, and through that, death entered the world. There's a doctrine that says, again, if you have enough faith, you'll never get sick, and you'll never have disease. Well, if you take that to the extreme, you'll never die. And let me just go by the dictionary in the encyclopedia and tell you what I'm, what I'm talking about. Death, according to the Encarta Encyclopedia, is the somatic, or of the body. Somatic death marked by cessation of heartbeat respiration, movement, reflexes, and brain activity. And then, of course, after that happens, all your systems shut down and you get attacked by microbes and they break you down in your simple component parts, right? And you get put back into the earth. It's not a real pleasant thought. Uh, Disease, synonyms for disease are sickness, malady, ailment, illness, unhealthiness, disorder, condition, etc. Again, according to the dictionary. It says, disease may apply generally to any deviation of the body from its normal or healthy state, or it may refer to a particular disorder with a specific cause and characteristic symptoms. Malady usually refers to a deep-seated chronic disease, frequently one that is ultimately fatal. An ailment refers to a chronic, annoying disorder of whatever degree of uh, of seriousness. So unless the rapture comes first, all of us will have some type of issue here, and we'll die a body death, okay? And something leads to that death. The statistics show that 10 out of 10 people die, that's a fact, it's true. (laughs) And you may ask me, well, what about a tragedy? What about a serious car accident? What about a gunshot wound? You know, People always try to throw something in there to trip you up. The answer to that is, although it originated from an outside source, as a result, there's still a cessation of a body function in a vital system that leads to death right as we get closer to death diseases or maladies or conditions become precursors to death in the beginning when god made people uh when god made adam and eve they weren't supposed to die but because of sin entering the world through rebellion death entered the world so physiologically and spiritually depending on if you're born of the spirit or not if you're born again we are all progressing towards death physically and spiritually Real happy message this Sunday morning, isn't it? Our bodies do their best to reproduce healthy cells, but there's an expiration date, if you will, that we don't know about on our physiological systems. We're all under the curse. So this model that you see, look at your hands, look at your legs, look in the mirror, okay, this model that you see, according to Genesis 6-3, can only get you about 120 years under ideal conditions. So even Peter, by resurrecting Tabitha or Dorcas was only delaying the inevitable. So, if I'm confusing you, hopefully by the time I'm done, you won't be confused. The Bible says we're comprised of three parts, and we've gone over this body, soul, and spirit. However, soul, or suke in the Greek, was where we get psychology, and those type of words, is of the mind. So you have the body, the mind, and the spirit. The spirit is the part which has the, uh, the tie-in to God, if you allow that. Now, oftentimes, soul and spirit are mixed. See, the atheist or the rebellious says, well, I'm just going to end my life, or when I die and go into the ground, I'm going to cease to exist. The computer shuts off, flatline, and that's it. Well, I got news for you. If you think that you're going to stop your consciousness by taking your own life or just dying a natural death, it doesn't happen. Because the moment you die, your consciousness is still there. It's either going to be in a good place or it's going to be in a bad place for eternity. The Bible is clear on that. So oftentimes, soul and spirit, when the Bible speaks about it, are are kind of joined together. So why do we often focus so much on the body then? Why do we live as if we're always going to have this flesh forever? Well, let me read something else, some facts on the human body. Because when this machine works really good, it's really fun to be in this machine. Think about it those of you who do physical activity, those of you who do um, challenge things mentally, those of you who experience pleasure through your senses, right, this machine is top notch. So of course, we have the attitude every day we wake up, I got another full day of life, and tomorrow, and the next day, and the next day, but that's not the case. Facts on the human physiology. The nerve cell, and try to digest the magnitude, because they can measure these, try to digest the magnitude of these figures. Each nerve cell can transmit 1,000 impulses per second. The nerve messages travel at 248 miles per hour, and there's 45 miles of nerves that run throughout the body. One billion nerve cells are in the human brain with one trillion synapses or connections. One square inch of skin contains four yards of nerve fibers and 1,300 nerve cells. Your skin surface is about 25 square yards, and it's replenished once a month. The average person sheds about 40 pounds of skin in a lifetime. So when you get injured or you have a burn or you have whatever's going on, your body heals it and it makes it nice again, right? It's a beautiful thing about the human body. The human heart beats 40 million times a year or 3 billion times a lifetime. Did that one on a calculator. And the cardiac muscles never take a rest, even at sleep, only at death. The blood vessels, blood vessels stacked end to end can circle the earth two times or for 60,000 miles because the capillaries are so small. And because they're so small, the red blood cells in certain, place, certain places can only go through single file. Every two days, the stomach cells are replaced. You know, there's acid in there. There's a heavy activity going on. And 50 tons of food or waste move through the digestive system through the lifetime. It's kind of a disgusting thought if you think about it. The nose can distinguish between 4,000 and 10,000 smells, which can be good or bad depending on who you live with. (laughs) The average sneeze travels at about 100 miles an hour, another good reason to cover your mouth when you sneeze. And uh, let's see, 50 million body cells are replaced each minute, but the brain cells last a lifetime, for most of us anyway. And and I can go on. Six to eight feet of uh, genetic material. The human fetus acquires his or her unique set of fingerprints at three months in the womb and can learn and recognize sounds. And there are 639 skeletal muscles. And you know what that shows is there's redundancy in movement. It's amazing. You see these acrobats. You see... Uh, the gymnast and the amazing things they get the figure skaters, 639 skeletal muscles wrapped around the skeleton in multiple layers for redundancy of movement. And this doesn't count cardiac and smooth muscle. Do you know any machine designed today that can do what this human machine was designed to do? But of course, it happened over millions of years by accident, right? I got news for you. This pen in millions of years is still going to be this pen. <laughs> it's not going to change. So I don't, you know, I guess the, uh, the theory is if you can put more time, more time, more time, people say, well, that's plausible. Not so. So imagine what the original design of this body could do pre-curse, uh, pre-sin curse. And I digress to the human body for a few reasons. Number one, the Bible says that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. God has put a lot of care into our individual bodies, even in its fallen state. And it's only in its fallen state because we pushed it to that fallen state, and you can say, well, that's not fair if, you know, Adam and Eve, they kind of messed it up for all of us. But think about it. If Adam and Eve didn't rebel, you would have rebelled, or I would have rebelled. Somebody would have done it. So there you have it. The fatal flaw called sin means that in 120 years, all of our physical bodies will have perished. Everybody sitting here, including me, in 120 years will not be here in this form. Think about that. Uh, basically the spirit will continue and the consciousness, but the question is where? Our focus needs to be on the eternal because there's an inverse relationship between the vigor of our physical versus our spiritual selves. So there's good news, good news this morning, though, and let me turn your attention to Second Corinthians 4. 2 Corinthians 4. starting with verse 16. Only three verses. The context here is the Apostle Paul is talking about what he's suffered and his followers have suffered for uh, serving Christ. And the more they try to propagate the gospel, the more they got abused for it. The more they got beat up and stoned and shipwrecked and jailed and whipped. I can't imagine what Paul went through in his life. And he's saying, though, He goes, even with that backdrop, this is what he says. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. So the outward man, all right, we know our physical bodies are headed towards destruction. And that's the fact. But unfortunately, in his case, some people wanted to accelerate that process through all the things that they did to him. So the outward man is perishing. What we see, right, But the inward man is being renewed day by day. If we're born again of the spirit, then even though the this is kind of weird, it's it's an inverse relationship, even though the outward part is breaking down, our spirit now being born again, our spirit is alive now to God. So now we don't die anymore spiritually. We're born again. So as we stay on this earth, we get older and get broken down physically. But our spirit grows. Right. And God does a work in us that makes us come alive spiritually. You see? Next verse. He says, For our light affliction, imagine that. How many people have been whipped 40 to 39 times? How many of you have sat there and somebody pelted you in the head with rocks and, and you got stoned? Um, stoned meaning rocks, not the other way. Um, <laughs> shipwrecked, bitten by poisonous snakes. It's not confession time. And all that kind of stuff. And Paul calls it light affliction, which is but for a moment is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. It's for a moment. Our, our life, the Bible says, is but a, a vapor. It's like a, a puff of air. You know, Think about how many years that of recorded human history there's been and how many years men and women have lived on this planet that is recorded. Okay? It's in the thousands. Our, our lifespan, 70, 80 years, 90 years. Um, some people live over 100 It's it's nothing. It's a vapor compared to the, the history of humans. But what we do for the Lord, what we do as we work with the Lord, is working a far greater weight of glory, you see? 18. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And that's what I'm trying to explain to you. The things we see, our problems, our, our, our relationships, our financial situations, this is all temporary. If we work and, we, and we, you know, we're on a, a desire and, and a way to fulfill God's calling in our lives, it, you just can't compare it. When we get to, Paul was able to see, God showed Paul, according to the scripture, uh, he speaks in, the, in a third person, but he, he, it appears that God shows Paul what, the glimpse of what heaven was like. And Paul was sold immediately. He's like, wow. Just one glimpse of the eternal kingdom. Imagine seeing the throne room of God and the sea of glass in front of his throne and his throne and all the creatures, these magnificent supernatural creatures that he's created. To get one glimpse into the throne room of God would certainly change us. And when we get into Revelation, we'll start to see the description in words which doesn't do it justice. So, you know, I'm trying to get you jazzed up for the eternal here. So we can choose to pamper and prop up this flesh, or we can put all of our energies into something that lasts more than 120 years. I was, uh, we had the golf outing on uh, Thursday and a bunch of guys went back to one of the guys' house that had the outing and we sat around, we started talking about different things. A lot of subjects came up. And then I said, now let's take everything we talked about and put it against the backdrop of eternal life, right? Started talking about corrupt politicians. There's actually a paper Just this year, several papers have reported on some of the corruption in politics. Uh, The Trentonian, 12 arrested in Fed's corruption probe. The record, corruption scandals in abundance. This is just in New Jersey. The Trentonian, (laughs) New Jersey, the corruption state. I mean, this is just, what's with these guys, right? So the question is, since most of them get caught, why do they do it? Most of them especially are are at an age where they're not young men and they have maybe 20 or 30 years left in life. The question again is why do they do it? The answer is because this is what they're satisfying. This. This is what they're satisfying, right? They're satisfying their flesh. Um, I saw an interview with Ted Turner and he has $2 billion and he feels that $2 billion isn't enough. You know he can't really be generous because he needs more than two billion. You know because he's got to pad his retirement. The parable of the rich fool. God says to the fool, you know he guys he's like, I got so much money, I got so much grain, I'm going to build bigger barns. And God says to him, you fool, your life will require, be required of you tonight, and he dies. What's going to happen to all that stuff, right? Solomon, the richest man recorded in history, he was he was so upset because he had so much riches, and he said. You know, when I die, who's going to get my riches? And what if they don't do the right thing with them? And what if they don't continue all my projects? Who cares? You're dead. But he just was so concerned about his riches. There was another article uh, on Thursday that I cut and pasted here. And it said a billion dollars just doesn't seem to go as far as it used to. (laughs) I wouldn't know that. I wouldn't make that in 10 lifetimes. For the first time, it takes more than a billion dollars to earn a spot on Forbes magazine's list of the 400 richest Americans. The minimum net worth for inclusion in this year's rankings released Thursday was $1.3 billion, up $300 million from last year. Why is this so important? Because people have mortgaged eternity for this paltry existence. And many admit And I have to give people credit who admit. And they say, you know what? I got a yacht. I got a mansion. I got everybody that does everything for me. People cut my fingernails and and jazz up my toenails. And, you know, I am pampered beyond belief. I don't care if I go to hell. Now, it's a foolish statement, but at least you could respect it for its honesty. You know, I'm going to live as good as I can here. And I don't care what happens in eternity. Unfortunately, when that happens, they're going to say, oh, man, that was a bad mistake. Because if you look at the uh, rich man and Lazarus, which we covered, the rich man was in hate. He wasn't even in the lake of fire yet. And he said, Father Abraham, send somebody to talk to my brothers and warn them so they don't come here. Have somebody come back from the dead. And Abraham said, look, even if somebody rises from the dead, they're not going to believe it. And that was a picture of the resurrection and how even though Jesus rose from the dead, people still didn't believe it, right? So the question is, Where are all the wealthy, famous, respected people whose names are indelibly marked or engraved in hospital and university wings? You know, you walk through a hospital, you see somebody's name. Who the heck is that? I don't know. Some person who donated a lot of money 100 years ago, right? Street signs, uh, people's names named after medical procedures and disease names, right? Case law, many names after case law that have been around for, uh, you know, decades or more. Where are they now? What's the sense in having your name live on in academia if you're perishing in hell forever? Now, the caveat to that is it doesn't mean that all famous and rich people, and I've said this before, people tend to go to the other extreme. It doesn't mean that they're going to hell. I mean, I'm sure there's plenty of these people who trusted in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, and they're in heaven. But the point I'm trying to make is, do we, do we prop up this flesh? Do we prop up our intelligence? Do we prop up our abilities and skills with our hands and try to get the world to recognize us at the expense of eternal life? That's just foolish. What would these people say if they could speak to us now? Well, I mentioned hell a few times, and some churches do, don't do that because that's bad for business, but I don't mind mentioning hell because it's part of the Bible, Right? But I'm I'm, uh, positive that any of those people if God could bring them back from the dead if he would do that They would say they would preach a gospel far heavier And far more fire and brimstone than i'm preaching to you right now because they are realizing it Whatever we choose to build on our physical selves or our spiritual selves will have eternal consequences And that doesn't mean again Unfortunately, I have to say this but it doesn't mean we shouldn't eat right take care of ourselves and you know God has given us this temple to house our spirit this body is a, just think about this body. This body is a vehicle to who we really are, our spirit, our eternal selves. We have a housing that's that, that's that's um, perishable. That's housing the eternal. So it's it's a good thing. God has given us this this body. Take care of it, you know. Take care of it. Jesus said, "What does a man profit if he gains the whole world but loses his own and eternal soul?" And Jesus said, don't fear those who can kill the body but can't kill the soul. Fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell forever. Once we realize who we are eternally, that's when we can make a real difference for the kingdom of heaven. Now, verse 40. Verse 40 is interesting because if you remember Luke 8, where Jesus heals or Jesus raises Jairus' daughter from the dead, it is almost identical. It bears a striking resemblance to that portion of scripture. Number one, Peter could have been emulating Jesus when he raised Jairus's daughter. Because again, he almost follows it to the T of what Jesus did Peter remembered from his master. And that is what he did, right? And you can never go wrong by emulating Jesus. You know, as a pastor, sometimes I think that I can use my abilities to do something that needs to be done. And I always have to stop myself and say, what am I doing and how does it compare with the backdrop of the scripture? That's where I want to be. So you know what? Even if I do the wrong thing or the perceived wrong thing, but I'm following the scriptural guidelines, people can't get mad at me. They can get mad at the Bible. You know, I just did what my master taught me to do. So if we're going to emulate anybody in life like Peter did, we need to emulate Jesus Christ as our example. He's the standard. Second thing is Peter put everyone outside. And this speculation could have been, again, emulating his his Lord and Savior. In addition, it could have been maybe he knew what he wanted to do by the power of the Lord, but he wasn't 100% sure it would happen. Have you been there? It's like you know the Lord's speaking to you about something, and you know it's a good thing, and you know it's scriptural, and you know you want to do it, and maybe you, you meet some opposition. But, you know, you, you have the power of the Lord, you have the scripture, you have the Holy Spirit behind you, And sometimes as human beings, maybe we're 99.9% sure, and we have that little percentage of faltering. I'm not saying that happened to Peter, but certainly Peter was a human. He made mistakes prior to Pentecost and after Pentecost, as we'll see in Galatians. And we make mistakes too, but if God is on our side, we should try to really be confident in what we're doing. The last thing is maybe Peter had faith that it would happen, but he was completely humble and didn't want to make himself a spectacle. And that's why he put everybody outside. He didn't do with a lot of fanfare, but he focused on the Lord and not himself. Wow, how ministries have changed. Have you ever flipped through some of those Christian channels and seen some of these guys, right? Some of these, these preachers? You'll see anything but humility because men are ego-driven. Men, when they get attention, they just they become ego-driven. From manufacturing miracles to flashy apparel and jewelry and fancy cars and houses and, um, actually coming right out and saying, I healed you or point to the person that healed you. What happened to Jesus Christ healed you? Would now point to other people? It's through Jesus Christ. He's the one who gives us the gifts, right? It says the Bible says he gave gifts to men after he ascended. What about, uh, you know, some places have trophy walls with crutches and wheelchairs, implying this church has the gift of healing. I don't see that in the disciples. I don't see that in Jesus. Also, false doctrine. People emulate the Gnostics, okay? The, the heretics of long ago, the Gnostics. Those were the people that said, hey, it's great that you go to church. It's great that you listen to Peter and you listen to Paul. But we have some esoteric secret that that nobody else knows and if you follow us you will be on, on the top echelon and you'll be really good with god and you'll be really successful because i'm going to give you something that nobody else has jesus says there's no secrets he says that what's what's talked about in secret will be shouted from the, the housetops you know so the, what happens with people who follow this you come to us we have something nobody else has look i'll stick with the bible Okay? And if, somebody, if people think it's same old, same old, no problem. I will stick with the scripture because it's what God set forth. Uh, unfortunately, people do this so that they can look like there's something special or above the fray. Every pastor should be following the scripture. Um, let's see. Recent counsel. Uh, actually, I look, at, I look at Peter and Peter's attitude was that he didn't focus on himself. There was a humility there. Now, some would like to say that Peter was the first pope, but if you look at Peter's actions, he acted anything like a pope. If you read Peter's works, first and second Peter, he said, I am a fellow elder. He didn't look at himself above Paul or James or any of those guys. He said, I am a fellow elder. And when speaking to overseers, he said, shepherd the flock of God, shepherd them, care for them, not as lords, but as shepherds, Right. And when the chief shepherd arrives, he'll reward you according to that. So Peter's actions and his words are everything but self-aggrandizement. And that's the, the, the lesson that we need to take from him, not to focus on ourselves, not to do things that bring attention to ourselves. Um, unfortunately, sometimes it's a badge of honor to be known as uh, anything that makes us the center of attention. You know, I want to be known as the comedian. I want to be known as the rebel. You know, in the body of Christ, it just doesn't work. Because the more we focus on ourselves, the less we are in harmony with the body of Christ. There's a disease out there, and maybe some of you can guess what it is. Some cells in the body decide to go off on themselves, and they focus on themselves. They consume a disproportionate amount of nutrition, they splinter off into their own little group, and they eventually take a disproportionate amount of attention from the rest of the body, causing great harm to the body at large. Do you know what that disease is called? It's cancer. That's a sobering thought, isn't it? And I tell you, even when I prepare a message, there's a lot of illustrations that I try to use to help people understand the application phase of what we're teaching. But sometimes it's a struggle. And if I use an application, I say to myself, am I focusing on the Lord or am I focusing on Joe? If you leave here today and you're focusing on me, I failed miserably and I need to repent. If you leave here today and you say, gee, what did I learn about the Bible? What did I learn about Jesus? This is great. Then I've done my job and I've succeeded. Now, it's kind of neat. Gail Irwin wrote a book. um, It's about servanthood. And he says that you shouldn't make jokes about other people. He says, if you're going to joke, use yourself as an example. So there are some times that I I use my uh, experiences where I've done things wrong and I've corrected them, and I use an example so that you can see my mistakes and don't make that same mistake. Not really putting myself up, kind of taking myself down a little bit. And I was really encouraged two Wednesday nights ago. One of our elders, Vinnie Whitehead, taught a real convicting message, but he would often pause after a convicting statement, and he would say, now I know for myself where I could improve, So he uses himself as not a great example, but where he could improve. And it's, it's more digestible that way, you see? Now, Jesus was the only one who had the right. He had the right, if you think about this, in all of history, Jesus was the only one who had the right to be flashy and to command attention. But ironically, he was the most humble. And Peter certainly took his master's cue and did it the right way. Verse 42. It says, and it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed on the Lord. The third and most important event that we're going to discuss today is that Peter promulgated the eternal life-giving gospel. Yes, healing is great. Did Jesus come to just heal people? No. Yes, the resurrections were great. Did Jesus come to just raise people from the dead? No. The most most important thing that Jesus did was he came to die for our sins. So the gospel that expresses that and how we need to believe on him for eternal life was the most important thing, and that's what we see here. We know that the gospel is more important than healing and resurrection. We know that Lazarus, Jesus raised Lazarus, and the widow of Nain's son, and Jairus' daughter, and here Peter is resurrecting Dorcas. They all died again. And how do we know that they all died again? Because if they didn't all die, they'd be around today doing the talk show circuit, and that's not happening. So they all died again they were they were resurrected to show the power of God, but they 've since died physically k p Yohanan, uh again, that book, Revolution in World Missions, being a native of India, he grieves over the way the Western missionaries has changed Western missions again, a native to India, the subcontinent of uh, Asian subcontinent. he grieves because he said that the giving of the gospel has been, the focus has been taken off the giving of the gospel with Western missions and put more on improving the standard of living of the people. Now, both are good, but he said one was pulled away from the gospel and they, you know, the Westerners build hospitals, schools, etc., and raise their standard of living. And he said, without the gospel, all that does is allow my people to go to hell with a better standard of living. It's a very interesting way to put that. And this is what prompted his vision to train the indigenous people of India and other places like that to spread the gospel where missions have largely failed since the, uh, the end of World War II. Verse 33. So it was that he stayed many days in Joppa with Simon, a tanner. Peter stayed with Simon, a tanner. Now a tanner, if you don't know, was, he was somebody who took animal carcasses and it was a process, and people still do that today, make leather coats, and they turn the animal carcasses into leather through a, a process. So, it stands to reason that a tanner, a tanner was somebody who dealt solely with the dead. Now, a tanner would be unclean under Leviticus 11, which talks about the laws of handling carcasses. Now, Peter, being a devout Jew, was staying with this tanner. You see, God is already at work in Peter, and next Sunday, we're going to see the first recorded interpersonal evangelism between Peter and a Gentile, and that's Cornelius. So, before, before we close, we see the route that Peter took. He went from, for those of you who are geographically minded, he went from Jerusalem, northwest to Lydda, northwest to Joppa, to the coastal plains of the Mediterranean, and then north to Caesarea, as we'll see in the next chapter. Okay. I had an experience on Thursday. <laughs> and um, I was bit by a rodent. Actually, he was a wild animal and I was protecting my wife and my son, because I'm a hero, and it was this... What? He was this big, scary, wild animal, and I, I did my job, and I fought him off, and he bit me. Chipmunk. <clears throat> Something in my throat. I got bit by a chipmunk. I tried to save him and put him back in his hole. Whatever. It's stupid. And he bit me, and he punctured the skin. It's it's gratitude for you. But the animal control guy comes and he goes, you know, warm-blooded animals carry rabies, you better go to the hospital. I'm like, I hate hospitals. You sit there forever. So I go to the hospital and, um, you know, my wife and I are sitting there and reading about rabies. Rabies is fatal if you get it, right? And then I see the big, you know, they make you feel great at a hospital. There's this big poster board of pictures of people who have suffered bioterrorism attacks and what happens to their bodies. And what we, and I'm not afraid of dying, because you know what, if I die, I'm going to a good place, and Pastor Anthony is here to be your senior pastor. <laughs> so I'm not afraid of dying, but, you know, we're sitting there, and we're actually thinking about all the hundreds, if not thousands, of strains of viruses, bacteria, and toxins from bacteria that can kill us fatally. Boom, we're dead. And my wife said to me, you know, as human beings, we're fragile. And I thought about that. I'm like, yeah, we are fragile. We think that we're so strong and we can get up and have another day, but all it takes is one little microbe, one of these nasty little things to get in us, and they can kill us, right? And the point is, we're fragile and we don't have a lot of time here. So everything we do in life, every discussion, every thought that we have, must be put against the backdrop of eternal life for perspective's sake. So I just pray that when you leave here, and, and me also, we pray that we ponder eternity and try to think about what God wants us to do with our short lives here. Let's pray.